Hey, good morning, Kerrville Church. What a blessing to be with uh, you this morning. Let me take a moment to introduce myself. Uh, several of you, you should know, you guys are very good at making people feel welcome and at home. Uh, so thank you for welcoming, welcoming us. My wife, Gaina, and I are here, and my parents are, are here with us this morning as well. My name is Stephen, and uh, we live just down the road in Bernie, Texas. I work for Abilene Christian University. Worked for ACU for about 20 years. Was faculty in Abilene in the College of Biblical Studies and in the Graduate School of Theology. Um, and more recently, uh, work for ACU on and from and on behalf of its Dallas campus. How many of you know ACU? I'm assuming you do because Carson's been here, right? Uh, how many of you knew ACU had a Dallas campus? A few of you may know ACU has a Dallas campus. So for the last five years, I have worked overseeing the Dallas campus on behalf of the university. And for the last two years or so, maybe the last year or so, work remotely from Bernie. I travel to Dallas all the time, over to Abilene. I make this triangle across the state of Texas. And so uh, the Hill Country is home for us. And we're just so excited to make this connection with the church here in Kerrville and to be with you over the next uh, few weeks. God is good and God is near. Amen. I just had the feeling that this would be a church that when a preacher talks, will talk back to them. I'm hoping. So I'll say again, God is good and God is near. Amen. We thank God for the gift of God's word, and we turn our hearts and our minds fully to receive what God might do, what God might stir in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. We believe that God, by God's word and God, by God's spirit, transforms the world, transforms us. So let us, let, let, let us pray now as we turn our heart towards God's word, inviting God's presence and God's transformative work in us. Would you... Join me in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the gift of life in Jesus, for the life of your spirit that you've poured out, that blows from the four winds of the earth on even us who feel slain and renews us and sustains us and gives us life. And so we pray even today as we gather in this room where you are among us, where your word is in our midst, that you would blow the wind of your spirit into our hearts and into our lives, that you would shape, form, and transform us, that we might know life and life abundantly as you intend, that we might know the fullness of life that you intend. So bind every broken heart and mend every wound. Turn us more fully toward you, we pray. Your word, lamp to our feet, light to our path. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the storms can come up fast. Jesus gets into the boat. His disciples follow him. Of course, they follow him into the boat. And then it says, did you hear in the reading of the scripture this morning? Suddenly, suddenly. I imagine this as being one of those almost out of nowhere kind of storms that blow up. Suddenly, a furious storm came upon them, and waves sweep over the boat. The storms can come up 
fast. Okay, so I was raised in North Texas. Any North Texas people? I met someone from the Panhandle, my Panhandle friend, Hereford, Texas. You, you, you just got to know that um, the hill country is like heaven to a boy from North, right? Is that right? From, from the Panhandle. I grew up in Wichita Falls, up around Wichita Falls. Um, weather's not so great. The scenery's even worse in Wichita Falls. I remember when I was a boy, uh, there was one spring afternoon in 1979, my brother and I, my brother's two years younger, were playing outside. It was late, uh, early evening, late afternoon, playing outside, and the tornado sirens went off because in Wichita Falls, they go off all the time. Usually, they, they're just testing them all the time, the storm sirens. But it was a Tuesday afternoon, and it was late afternoon, early evening, and the sirens went off. So we kind of looked around and didn't think anything of it. We were involved in a robust game of wiffle ball or something. But we looked up, I looked up at the sky, and I, in one direction, the sky looked like it had turned entirely black. And I don't just mean like there was a cloud that was dark. I mean, you could almost draw a line from one point on the horizon on the, in the sky to another point. It was solid black. And on the other side, the sky was clear. Strangest thing ever. But we were playing wiffle ball. <laughs> and we were kids. And so it didn't matter until my mom ran outside and she said, boys, in the house. And so we dropped our things begrudgingly and trudged into the house. And she said, down the hall, she pointed us down the hall to the end of the hallway in our house. And she said, sit here. And she gathered up cushions off the sofa and she put them on either side of us. And the next thing I know, as the sirens began to blare again and they kept blaring, my mom and dad came down the hall, ducked into one of the bedrooms, pulled a mattress off the bed, out into the hallway towards us, my brother and I sitting at the end of the hall with our backs up against the wall. They knelt down in front of us, pulled the mattress over us. The storms can come up fast. We sat there waiting in those moments before mom and dad pulled the mattress over, whining because we were hungry. It was late afternoon, early dinner, and I remember that my mom had flung a bag of Oreos down the hall at us. It's like, this is serious, mom's throwing Oreos. And then they knelt down in front of us, and they pulled that mattress over us. Mom held one side, and dad held the other, and the storm hit. April the 10th, 1979, that storm, that tornado, was approximately three miles wide. How many of you ever uh, sat through a tornado or knelt or you know what it sounds like? What does it sound like? It sounds like a freight train. It's coming right through your house. And that thing began to rumble and I remember that my dad began to pray. Now, I had heard my dad pray before. He raised us in church. 
I heard him pray at church. I heard him pray at home at dinner time. I had heard my dad pray before, but not like that. He prayed the kind of prayer that you pray when you're un uncertain whether your future and your life is going to continue or not. The words he prayed were for God to spare us. When you're 10 or 11 years old and you're hunkered down at the end of the hallway and your dad prays that prayer, you don't forget. The storms can come up fast. We have a friend, her name is Julie, over in Bernie. And a few weeks ago, Julie uh, went to check in on her mom. Her mom lives out of town, and she went to spend a few days caring for her elderly mother. Her husband, Kyle, 38 years, stayed home. He had just retired. Uh, Kyle just retired some, uh, not, not long ago. Kyle stayed home. She was going to check on her uh, mom. Kyle had found in his retirement joy in working in his yard, beautiful, you know, one of those people that can just make a yard look beautiful, and he stayed home to work on his yard. On Wednesday, she called to check in on Kyle that afternoon, and he didn't answer, and she didn't think much of it. But on Thursday, when he hadn't called back yet, she started to get really worried. And so she called and had the police come for a well check, and they found Kyle in the backyard. He had been gone for who knows how long. When I saw Julie for the first time, and we hugged her and embraced her, she said, I just don't know what to do. I've never experienced anything like this before. The storms can come up fast. And even as I tell that story, I know that some of you can tell similar stories. How all of a sudden life is disrupted, and the world, as you have known it and carefully curated it, and we're are, are working hard sometimes to put the pieces together to arrange it, so that you can forge a life with future and hope and joy when suddenly that's disrupted and the rug is pulled out from under. You don't know what to do when the storms come up fast like that. I imagine that Matthew tells this story not just to report on, hey, I'd like for you to know what happened to happen one day in the life of Jesus when he was with his disciples and they decided to get in a boat. But I'm telling you, I think he tells this story because he has in his mind's eye, he sees and he knows that the church before him in his own time and place knows what it's like to be in a boat like that. Imagine this. Early on, in the church to which Matthew writes, most of the followers of Jesus there are Jewish Christians. 
their identity, their life, their culture, their heritage, all of the things that they practiced, how they put life together, was bound up in their identity as the people of God. And they heard the good news of God in Jesus, and they believed that Rabbi Jesus was God's anointed one, and they were followers of Jesus, but they were also still Jewish people who followed Jewish customs. They participated, much like Jesus did, in all of the Jewish customs of his day. They benefited from the relationships that had been forged and formed in their community and in their context and in their culture. They were followers of Jesus, but that didn't mean that they stopped going to synagogue. It didn't mean that they stopped participating in the Jewish festivals. I'm telling you, there was great continuity for early Jewish Christians and their life, even as they were followers of the rabbi, the the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus. That's true of the church that Matthew tells this story to about Jesus and the disciples in the boat. Until about A.D. 70. And in A.D. 70, the tension in Jerusalem between Jews and between the Romans came to a climax. And the temple was destroyed in A.D. 7, and everything blew up, literally and figuratively. When that happened, Jewish Christians found themselves disenfranchised from the Jewish communities of which they were a part. They were torn from those relationships because Jewish people believed that when God's people were faithful and following God, God's blessing would follow. And, and when God's people weren't faithful, that all kinds of trouble would come. And so they sat there and they watched the Romans come and destroy their temple and d- disrupt their life. And they said, why is this? It must be because of those followers of Jesus. So they began to turn on those early Jewish Christians. And they pushed them out and they were cut off from the relationships that had constituted their life and their world and the practices that they had been a part of. And they were alienated. They were dispersed, pushed out of Jerusalem even. Matthew writes to a church whose world has been disrupted, they know what it means to sit in that boat. They know what it means for a storm like that to roll up fast. So what does Matthew do? He tells them a story about what happened to Jesus to say, come, I know what it is to be in a boat like that. Come sit in a boat like that and let me remind you of something really, really important. He's describing, when he tells that story, a church whose future is uncertain. They live in this space. I'm going to use this word and then unpack it a little bit. They live in this space of liminality. What it means is that the world that you once knew is gone, and the world that's in front of you, you don't know what it's going to look like, and you're kind of stuck in between. A lot of us have been in that space. Julie is in that space. 
if you've ever had um, a relationship, a marriage, or known of one that's fallen apart, shattered into about a million pieces, and you're on the other side of that trying to figure out what life's supposed to mean and be about, you know liminality. If you've ever lost a job or had a business that collapsed, you know what liminality is. If you've ever lost someone that you love, like Julie has, and you wake up the next morning and everything's different, you know what liminality is. The world that you once knew is gone, and whatever the world's going to look like in the future is unsure. He writes to a church that's in that moment, and I don't know that it isn't true for us as well. We sometimes find ourselves as individuals and collectively in that space in between where you're in the boat, and it can be peaceful enough that Jesus would fall asleep, and then the storm hits. What Matthew tells them is not, don't worry, the storm's not as bad as it seems. And if you've ever heard someone say something like that to you when you're in the midst, when you're in the boat that's about to be swamped, you know it's not true, right? He's not trying to tell you that the storm's not as bad as it seems. Just hang in there. He's not trying to dismiss or trivialize that moment. What he is trying to do is to remind them of who God is and who they are. To remind them of who God is and who they are, especially in the midst of the storm. Look at what Matthew does. Okay, need a little bit of uh, Bible participation here. So hang with me for a few, few minutes here. When Matthew tells his story, you can follow along. In Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus is born in Bethlehem, where does Jesus go by virtue of his parents? They take him and they escape to Egypt. So they run off to Egypt, they're in Egypt for a time, and then they return from Egypt, and in chapter 3, do you know what happens? Jesus moves forward in his life and mission and calling sent by God out to the river Jordan, where he meets John, and he's baptized by John in the Jordan River. He goes to Egypt, he comes out of Egypt, he crosses through the water, and then he's where? Chapter 4 says he's sent into the wilderness. Follow the storyline here. Sent to Egypt, out of Egypt he comes, through the water, into the wilderness. Somebody tell me what that reminds you of. Reminds you of. That's Exodus. This is the story of the people of God. This is who they are. When they forget who they are, through the ages, they come back to the story. We were in Egypt, we were oppressed and suffering, and God heard us, and God led us out of Egypt. He led us through the water. Pharaoh's chariots chased us, but God delivered us through the waters. He sent us into the wilderness, and you know what we found in the wilderness? We found God was there with us in the wilderness. 
This is the story that Matthew tells. Because when you're disoriented and when the storm has come and when you're in that liminal space and everything's been turned upside down, you're not sure what the future looks like, Matthew says, you remember who you are. You are the people of God. And God from the beginning has come to you and delivered you through the water and goes with you and leads you forward into a future, into the wilderness. Now, there's some interesting turns here, right? Because in the wilderness, the first thing they do is say, Great, God, you let us out here. For what purpose? To die. <laughs> and God provides water from the rock and manna from heaven and sustains them. God goes before them, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. God leads them forward into a future even when they can't see it or believe it or own it, even when they reject it. You see what Matthew's doing? You're in that boat. Remember, this is who God is, even in the midst of the storm. This is who you are, the people of God. It starts there. And did you know that Matthew's gospel is divided? You can divide Matthew's gospel into five discourses, five sections, five parts, if you will. There's a reason for that, that Matthew structures his story that way. You know what else is divided into five parts? Hint, in your Old Testament? Yes, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Five sections because Matthew's calling their attention back to the Word of God is at the center of your life. God has called you forth and all things forth, and God sustains life by God's Word. You are a people of the Torah. You are a people of the Word. God is present by God's word. If you forget, look over. That guy sleeping in the boat next to you is the word. And God's word is with you and has been with you. Don't forget, God is the God of deliverance. And the God is the God. But let me, let me point your attention here. The first teaching section, that first discourse in Matthew number one of the five. You might recognize it. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount begins with, you know, the, the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, Matthew 5, right? Do you know how many Beatitudes there are? Anyone? This is like, it feels like church trivia, doesn't it? You didn't know you were coming to church trivia? There'll be a winner at the end. No, I'm just kidding. There are nine of them. Close. Nine. There are nine. Now I want to tell you something that once I tell you, you'll think about it and you'll start looking for it. It's one of those things when you see it, you start looking for it everywhere. It's a literary device that I believe Matthew uses to draw our attention. If there are nine things or any list of things that are an odd number, he's drawing your attention into the thing that sits in the middle. Okay? There's a term for that. So some of you are already starting to count. If there are nine, what's the beatitude that's in the middle? It's number five. Good. Thank you. <laughs> See me afterwards for a prize. It's number five. And if you have your Bible, please look. You can find the fifth beatitude at Matthew 5, verse 7. And what does it say? Blessed 
are the everybody say it together blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy you know what's interesting is that at the end of the five books you've got the first book Sermon on the Mount the end is, is really a sermon about woes or curses it's in chapter 23 and just like there are nine beatitudes there is a list of woes do you know how many woes there are that would be really cool if it was nine, <laughs> but it's not. There's actually seven of these warnings or woes, which means which one's in the middle? Where's our fast math people? Four. You can read Matthew 23, verse 23. Flip over there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. This is the fourth woe, the one in the middle. 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It's these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. What have they neglected? Justice Mercy and faith. That's a list of three things. Which one's in the middle? Everyone say it together. Mercy. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Matthew's saying when you're in the boat and life's been shattered into about a million pieces and you feel overwhelmed, what you thought you knew about the world is gone. What you're looking forward, is un looking forward to is unclear. Remember that the God who called his people out of Egypt into a future is the same God who's with you there in the boat. Remember that the God of the Torah, the God of God's word, is with you there and that God's word is this. Mercy. Mercy. It's mercy. Did you know that Matthew offers us a commission. You've heard it, have you heard of the Great Commission? You've heard of the Great Commission? Yes. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The Great Commission. It's at the very end of Matthew. Did you know that's not the only commission in Matthew's gospel? I didn't know this. I just thought the Great Commission. Go make disciples. Did you know that there's a, a commission that comes before the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel? And it's found, let me point you to it, right when Jesus is questioned about eating with tax collectors and sinners, and Jesus says to them, they ask him about that, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. Remember that part? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's, it's the sick. That is. And then you know what the next thing he says? So go and learn what this means. Go is a commission. Go and make disciples. Go and learn. Go and learn what? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You don't have to earn your way back in. You don't have to pile up the sacrifices to summons God's presence. You don't have to pile up the sacrifices. You don't have to do that. 
I talk really loud. I can just keep shouting. You going to swap me out? Okay. I'm almost done anyway. Is that better? Is that better? Hello. You, you, You don't have to do that. Go and learn the way of mercy. You're never going to go make any disciples until you've learned mercy. Go and learn mercy. I'm hot. It's hot. So hold on, church. Hold on. This year's been a hard year. Maybe more than a hard year. This year's been a a year like no other. Anybody see this storm coming? I didn't. Maybe there were some signs, some little clouds popping up on the horizon. I didn't see it. It's been hard on almost every front. Hold on, church. You're in that boat, and the waves are coming up, and it feels like it's about to capsize everything you've ever known. Remember who you are. You're the people of God. And that God is with you in the moment. That God is going to ride the storm out with you. He's not gone anywhere. He's right there. You are the people of God. And that God is with you. And that God's word that spoke the creation into existence and spoke life into all things speaks life into you by God's Word, and that Word is mercy. God's mercy is abundant, and God's mercy is with you. There's a blessing that I learned really just over the course of this last year and in the middle of all of this that we've all endured. And let me just say before I share that blessing with you that I do want to make a connection here. I'm excited to get to know you better over the next few weeks. What a gift to come to know this church. And yes, amen. And um, But I also know what it's like for a church to be in between. So the preacher that you have known, and I think in this case known for a long time, is not here, and another one's coming, but you don't know who or what or what that means. That's kind of an in-between time, too. Hey, lean hard. Lean hard on the God who's present with you in this journey and whose mercy never ends. Remember who you are. So the blessing goes like this. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness. And listen here protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. May the peace of Christ go with you. Let's pray. God, surely you are in this place and your peace falls upon us all. 
we pray that you would join us from whatever walks that have brought us here, that you would join our hearts now around this table, that we might know your nearness, and mostly we might know your mercy, so that we might be your merciful, life-giving people to each other, that we might be your merciful, life-giving people in the world. Bless us as we take this bread and share this cup and make us one. In these promises, your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.